Madden Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary. The year is 3013. The galaxy is scintillating in the mellow light. Two galactic pilgrims seek out vistas in the samurai future to bring forth the unity of the cosmic shaman. Opening the door of the pantheon of mystics, the evil sorcerer wizard powers the engine of science, seeking to forever alter the sacred balance, traveling on effervescent balls of summer fire. This week, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. In the year 2019, I ate whale meat for the first time, but I didn't realize till afterwards that it made me super depressed. Yeah, oh man, mine goes all the way back to, I think, 2004. I thought I was buying like a raw tuna, like I was going to have like a sushi uh, fun and I, man, we're starting this off. I was at that buffet meal last year and I, I picked, I, it just looked like some breaded chicken or something. So I'd eaten it and then I think it was me, sensei was like, oh, so how do you like whale? I'm like, oh, I've never eaten whale. I don't want to eat whale. I'm so, I'm so, you literally just ate whale. <laughs> oh, no. So, okay. Um, we live in Japan. Sometimes we don't know what we're eating, and the, the folks here are both eating whale. <laughs> this is horrible. Because today's movie is Star Trek, the one with the whales. We didn't actually introduce ourselves. No, I just wanted to scream that out. So, this is Matt. This is Luke. Welcome to the Sci Fi Sanctuary. Yes, you got the whole title. That's cool. You know I don't like it when we do like one word each. It sounds weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it works out that way. Um, you know, uh, for, for Star Trek, it's always fun to get a nice roundtable discussion going on. Um, we, we've been, give a shout out to the Roddenberry podcast because we've been poaching people from them for our Star Trek movies. Uh, and for Star Trek 4, um, we have got Sue and Sarah from Women at Warp having a chat with us. So hello. Hi. Hello. We got both of you. So um, I, I actually, I got I tell you my story. When I first heard your podcast, um, I started listening to Mission Log. I was listening to Trek Pals. And for you guys, I just finished the Picard novel, uh, which I enjoyed actually quite well. And um, the train stopped after work. Now, I could have made a few more phone calls um, and gotten a ride or taken a taxi. But I was like, I'm just going to walk 32 miles home, like in the middle of the night. And I just hardcore like several of your podcasts with the Picard ones and, and, and a few others. So yeah, it was enjoyable to be accompanied uh, with your podcast on that long walk through the dark night. <laughs> Actually, 32 miles, because that's at least a four to five hour walk. Uh, yeah, that's where my brain got stuck, too. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry, this is Japan kilometers uh, for miles. Let's, we could take that down. That's to okay, miles, so it's, it's more like 13 miles. Uh, uh, 20 miles. Which- 20 miles ish. Okay. It, was, it was pretty intense, but I don't know. It was just like I wanted to see Still, if I could do it. That's a long walk. <laughs> it was fun. Yeah. My legs didn't hurt the next day, so that was good. Uh, Luke <laughs> did it too, but he did it in the middle of the day. So, yeah, and slightly further, but yeah, because yeah, mine was about 50 kilometers. Oh, because you did it. I did it all the way from my house to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah there. so. But yeah, I made the mistake of doing it in like full sunshine and I was absolutely exhausted by the end. And, and Luke, um, Luke had an amazing sunburn on his head too. 
Yeah, yeah. When you're bored, you always have to wear a hat. <laughs> <laughs> um, getting into our first impressions on Star Trek Four, um, I, I we talked. I already talked Star Trek Three being one of the first films I think I saw in the theater, at least ones that weren't an anime and animated. Sorry, in Japan we call Disney anime too. <laughs> But I do know this was the first one that I was kind of excited about going to the theater to see. Star Trek Three. my dad kind of dragged me and I enjoyed it. But this one, I just like, yeah, I want to see it. And then the next year was next gen. I had all the toys. I don't believe Star Trek Four had any toys, which is, is too bad. But um, uh, I've referenced before a few times on this podcast, uh, Big Lebowski Syndrome, where I've seen the, the movie so many times I can't watch it. This does go in that category. Um, I always... I enjoyed watching it, but honestly, I could just play the whole thing in my head without really even putting a screen on, so. I think this was the first Star Trek film I saw. I think that's true for a lot of people. It's the one I have the earliest memory, because this one was on TV in the UK all the time. And I I'd watched, I was like already watching Next Gen, probably watching the original series on reruns sometimes as well. And so I know if like, Star Trek came up in the TV guide, I'm like, oh, I'll watch some Star Trek. And I just remember this being really... Like, oh, this is fun. They go back to modern times in this one. I've never seen that before. Not knowing they did it like three times a season in the original series anyway. But <laughs> yeah, There is a lot of tomorrow is yesterday flying through here. I guess we'll go, I'll go alphabetical. Uh, Sarah, what, what were your first um, impressions on this one? I honestly can't remember when I saw this one for the first time. Um, I remember my first Star Trek movie was Star Trek V. And I only saw it because... I used to go live with my grandparents in Nagoya in the summers and my aunt and uncle took me to a double feature and it was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and Star Trek V. So that was my first Star Trek movie in the theaters. I was watching Next Gen on TV and I think I must have watched Star Trek IV on TV at some point. I that do. must have been it. I've got to ask what were your first impressions of Five then. <laughs> we actually like that one, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it has its reputation. I liked it in the theater. Now, keep in mind, I was what, I, like 10 or 12 or something. I can't remember what year it came out. Um, I remember I liked the scene with them um, when they're out camping and they're climbing the cliff and all of that. And I remember um, whenever the Klingons were talking, there would be English subtitles at the bottom and Japanese down the side. So the screen got pretty busy. <laughs> That's cool. Um, yeah, we were definitely used to that watching uh, movies in theaters in Japan. Uh, well, at least until so it's a dice roll whether you're going to get the English subtitles and the Japanese or just the Japanese. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you just kind of got to guess what those uh, subtitles are going to be. Yeah, actually with five, I, I went to see it with my dad on opening night and um, we hated it. Now I like it. <laughs> it's like I've grown to actually like that one a lot. <laughs> see, I don't think I watched it until I was like in my teens and had the DVD because I always heard it was terrible and just assumed that was true <laughs> but yeah we can already already feel the feel the black hole of uh five pulling us in for better or for worse so let's get back to four and uh sue uh what what were your original impressions here you know similarly i honestly don't know when i first saw this film um i was young enough that if my family took me to the theater i have no memory of it now but i i also just feel like it was always sort of there you know star trek was just on in my house if it was on tv so i grew up with reruns of the original series on tv i grew up with whenever the movies were on they were on tv i do remember watching the first season of next gen at home but i i can't tell you when i first watched voyage home 
It's yeah. just, it's always been in my brain. <laughs> we just, um, actually, it's what is currently airing on our show. We did like sort of 80s sci-fi comedy month. And we did find, we did um, kind of the, the Bill and, the first, actually all three of Bill and Ted's now there's a third. We did Short Circuit. And this kind of goes in that batch. It almost feels, I could imagine this one being made without any of the other ones being made. Yeah. Like Star Trek was a TV show from the 60s. Here's a comedy one where we bring it back and they meet the modern world. Well, I heard on international releases, um, I saw an Australian poster which just says, The Voyage Home, and then really tiny Star Trek Four. And um, huh. apparently for international release, they did make a 10-minute recap to prologue the film with Shatner narrating just to catch those international audiences up. So in many places, this did exist as a standalone film. Huh. Yeah, it was... Um... Sorry, my brain just stopped. Um, Star Trek films uh, did not do well in the overseas markets. So they tried when they were marketing or promoting this one overseas, they tried to remove the Star Trek branding from it to make people think it was just, you know, a fun sci-fi action film. And I read this actually was the first Star Trek movie shown in the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. With Greenpeace, I think. Yeah, something like that. Oh, wow. That's cool. They they could have some definitely have some fun with uh Chekhov getting caught by the Navy then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like the the worst one to show in the Soviet Union. <laughs> Sorry, just found it. Not Greenpeace, the World Wildlife Fund. Oh, nice. oh okay. <laughs> but yeah, I know that this makes more sense. <laughs> this was the most successful one until the Kelvin verse. I can understand. I can believe that. Yeah. Uh, what's what's weird is in places and I don't think this is true because there are like great effect shots. It feels like this was the we've given up and don't have any money one. The soundtrack does that. A oh, just the fact that it's set in, it's like, well, that's what they did in the TV show, right? We don't have money for a sci-fi set this week, so we're going to use something on the back lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they okay. didn't make any new ships for this one. They did make the, the probe was new, but all of the shots of ships and Starbase and all of that, those were reused. And the probe's just a tube. <laughs> mm-hmm. That Pretty glowing much. thing. It's got the glowing ball. Yeah, I, I read about them, you know, putting in translucent tubes and I guess a motor or something. I'm not quite sure how they did that, but I'm not, I'm not quite an FX geek, I guess. I mean, it's always fun to hear about, but I certainly don't. I never know. remember any of it. Yeah. That's my point, yes. Um, let's get a little deeper in the film, but uh, first I'll just, uh, I'll regale us all with the tale of Star Trek Four. massive probe approaches Earth. It takes out Starfleet vessels and depowers Earth's orbital defenses. Upon reaching Earth, it lets loose a strange signal and begins vaporizing the oceans. Meanwhile, on Vulcan, the senior crew of the late starship Enterprise under Admiral James T. Kirk prepares to go home and face the Piper. They had managed to save their crewmate Spock, but shattered multiple Federation laws in the process. Spock joins them for the voyage and their stolen Klingon bird of prey. He stands with his crew. Once our intrepid crew approaches Earth, though, they receive a distress call from Starfleet Command to stay away due to the effects of the probe. Kirk and crew deduce that the probe's signal is actually calling out to the now extinct species of humpback whales. 
The only thing to do is to slingshot around the sun, sending them back into Earth's past where they can procure a few of those whales. Doing this, they successfully make it to 1986 San Francisco. But the bird of prey is losing power. Kirk and Spock go looking for the whales, while Dr. McCoy and engineer Scott try to fabricate an aquarium on the bird of prey that will hold the massive whales and the water. Commanders Chekhov and Uhura go looking for a nuclear substitute to power their spaceship, while Sulu ends up mostly on the cutting room floor. Kirk and Spock have some success meeting Dr. Jillian Taylor, a marine scientist who looks after aquarium-bound whales, despite Spock jumping into the drink and trying to mind-melt with the whales. They've got to move fast, though, as the whales will soon be released into the wild. Complications ensue when Chekhov is captured, injured, and hospitalized after siphoning power from a nuclear naval ship, and the whales are released a touch early. The former Enterprise crew manages to rescue Chekhov as well as the whales, who were just about to meet the harpoon of a whaling vessel. With the whales beamed on board into the new reinforced aquarium, the ship blasts back to the future with Dr. Taylor still in tow. The whales then have a chit chat with the probe, which is finally satisfied and leaves. Marooned in the future, Dr. Taylor joins a science vessel, while Kirk and crew are mostly exonerated since they saved the Earth, except for Kirk, who is demoted to captain. Fortunately, that is exactly what he wants, especially when they hand over a brand spanking new Enterprise A to go along with the rank. backwards I get older and younger and I see. Am I right in thinking this is the first Star Trek movie which came out when Next Gen was a thing? Next uh, Next Gen basically got mostly greenlit because this one was successful. Oh, okay, so it wasn't airing yet when this came out. This is uh, this came out I think October or November 1986. Which, Thanksgiving weekend. There we go. And um, Next Gen I think they'd been basically like doing the brainstorming on it at that point but once this took off that's when it was like okay here's your money go make this please. The only reason I mention it is because in this one um, it very much feels like an ensemble cast film. I love that about this movie how every character has their thing they have to contribute. Which is much more of a next gen thing than an original series thing. I think that's really an 80s thing. Right? It's not just Star Trek doing this. It's how storytelling changed at this point in history. And you're seeing a lot more ensemble casts in television and movies at this point in media history. Hmm. Yeah, I guess, the, you know, the 70s, there were sort of the, the renegade directors, uh, you know, um, it's in Nashville. Which city is it? I don't know. Um, Robert Altman films. Then you get Hill Street Blues. So I guess, you know, by this time, it's just kind of worked its way into a whole lot of uh, movies and TV. I'm going to tell you, I'm a British guy who was born in 1990. All of those shows you just mentioned went over my head. <laughs> they got ensemble cast. <laughs> no MASH? No MASH? I'm vaguely aware of MASH. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah I guess that wouldn't be a British thing. Yeah. No. Okay. <laughs> I mean, television at least seems to oscillate, right, between the ensemble cast and the, like, star-driven shows. And I think what that we're... We're, we're back in ensemble again. But yeah, you, I think like, Game of know, Thrones kind of switched ago, us back over. 
There yeah, is- but if you look 10 years ago, you're looking at a show that has a star that is driving it. So it's, it's interesting. The one part of the ensemble that we, we kind of talked a little bit about this in Star Trek Three, but watching, I was like, oh yeah, that really is the case. Is that, yeah, George Takei really got the short end of the stick because he did have that ensemble stuff and it all ended up not shot or on the cutting room floor. Yeah, I, I actually found myself thinking like, wait, where's Sulu? What's he doing? Yeah. He's cutting between all these different groups and he's just not getting screen time. Exactly. I couldn't even remember like what his mission was supposed to be. He had a little bit. He went and got the helicopter and was talking to the guy, and he like knew what kind of helicopter it was, even though they were way in the past. I thought that was pretty cool. It is no, it's cool. But um, uh, what there, I believe there was a filmed deleted scene where he um was actually in the air talking to the guy some more, just expanding uh, his story. I think there was a, was it filmed or just written? There was a scene where he meets his own ancestors. Oh, um, I'll just we actually got the story from uh, Larry Nemechek talking Star Trek Three, but. <laughs> Yeah, when they walk by the Yellow Pages ad, there's a um, a woman who comes out, and that is supposed to be um, Sulu's like great great grandmother, and he meets a kid, which is like his great great grandfather. And the right. kid was on set; they were going to do a scene, but there was some issue, and they had to stop filming, and it never happened. Huh. So, yeah, I, I, I think they ran out of light. It. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, that was the thing. He actually they they were he was supposed to be a proper part of the ensemble. And, kind of got cut on that. So that's a bummer. Um, the other actors do quite well by that, of course. So mm. maybe we should get into them. Um, Chekhov, I, in, in Star Trek three, like he had that cape, which looked ridiculous. Mm. I, I really wanted him like walking the streets of San Francisco with that cape though. That's, that is the place to wear a cape. Yeah. This is like the first time ever the Chekhov gets to be an actual character. Yeah. <laughs> Like, what was the most lines you'd had before this that weren't screams? Oh, I was about screams, so yeah. okay. <laughs> oh, yeah, but that's like the number one thing people remember from this film, right, is where are the nuclear vessels? Yeah. <laughs> See, that, that scene is great, but I enjoy even more when he's captured and he is unintentionally sassing, like, the naval officer. <laughs> Very cute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, that is the one. I, I had not forgotten about that scene, but I had kind of forgotten about like how entertaining it was. He's, it's amazing that at the age he was making this film, he still captures so much like boyish charm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Gonag still has some of that, honestly. I heard an interview with him recently where he had quite a bit to say. <laughs> oh, fair enough. Um, I guess Nikel Nichols does get a, a nice amount to do here. I always feel like they, she was always underused and just, you know, she was already in a very groundbreaking role, but never got a whole lot to do. But three gave her to do. She gets some nice stuff to do here. Yeah, she's still mostly like manning the phone, but she does get to go and do some stuff. Yeah, I found it interesting. Nichelle's the only one who really stays in full uniform for the entire film. Everybody else is in civvies, but she's still in her, her monster maroon. Um, and... She gets she gets to go off with Chekhov at the start, but escapes. I guess is is beamed out in time, so it cuts it cuts her screen time down. Unfortunately, it's not as bad as in Five when she forgets how to speak Klingon, which has always made me so angry. But yeah, being you know, it, we've like- certainly seen worse representation for for our women on the crew in mm. in the Star Trek films. I think in this one, I can kind of forgive them because if she had been there, the whole he's a Russian thing wouldn't quite have worked as well. Sure. So I th- I would imagine that's why they beamed her out early. But yeah, it still leaves it was a little disappointing that she doesn't get a bit more to do. 
she really does is she tracks the whales and that's about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, one thing I guess this film does have is, well, it doesn't have Eddie Murphy, but it has one of the few like notable female roles in a Trek film when you get right down to it with uh, Dr. Taylor. I love Jillian Taylor so much. She is, um, can, do we swear on this show or no? Yeah. Oh yeah, fuck no, yeah. She she is not here for bullshit, right? She is doing her job. She cares the most about her whales. She doesn't care who these randos are who are her here asking all of these questions. But even when she finds out the truth and decides that she's going to go with the the uh, bounty crew, not the Enterprise crew at this point, <laughs> the bounties crew to back to the future. Um, she's she's doing it to protect her whales, and that full stop. And she's intrigued by Kirk. She's interested in him, but when it comes right down to it, she's choosing George and Gracie over him. No hands down. No matter what. And I guess that's why I like her being in this film. I mean, if it had been the the originally um, thought of. Um, Eddie Murphy, there there would have been plenty of bullshit. <laughs> so it, it is a good choice um, for for this film. I think that character and that role is what makes it feel like, like we were saying earlier, one of the typical eighties comedies. That she is, she's like Stephanie from Short Circuit. She's exactly that character bumping into the Star Trek crew. She's she is sharper than Stephanie from. Well, Short Circuit, yeah, but, <laughs> but she, she's still like the modern day point of view. This, this didn't strike me to watching it this time, though. If she's the assistant director, why is she giving the tour? <laughs> she just loves them whales, and she loves talking about whales. Okay, <laughs> sure, I'll take that explanation. <laughs> it, might, it might have been like a particular press tour rather than just, you yeah. know. I'd ask, how, I'd ask how Kirk and Spock got on that tour then, but uh, how do they get in half their situation? Yeah. So. <laughs> they just added themselves to the back of the, yeah. back of the crowd. No, We've all done it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there we go. Uh, well, and, and Spock finds his way out of the back of the crowd too, which is of course fun. <laughs> I don't know if that was Leonard Nimoy or a stunt double, but when he's swimming with the whales, he's got a fine ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> I couldn't help but notice. <laughs> no, no, we, well, I, I'm the one, we just did Reanimator, recorded Reanimator a few days ago, and I, I recognized the Terminator stunt double's ass, so. <laughs> So guys can do that too, I guess. <laughs> um, Nimoy is definitely like, you know, Star Trek Two. he was kind of on the fence if he really wanted to be there. Mm. I guess drove a truckload of money to his house. Three, he's not in it. So this is the first time we've really seen him kind of relishing the Spock role for, for quite a... I mean, he's great in Two, of course, but here he's just relishing the role, I think. Yeah, he's having a lot of fun with it, it feels. Spock has sort of had, hit a reset button right because of what's what's gone on on the genesis planet and he is the most like data in this film speaking of its proximity to next gen mm. than he is i think anywhere else in the the tos stories i think we talked about this on was it the wrath of khan one how he gets arnold rimmered and how every time he has a character breakthrough they have to hit the reset button because they don't know how to write spock <laughs> once he gets over his vulcanness because, yeah, like, Star Trek 1, he comes in, he's super logical, but then by the end, he's warmed up a bit. Star Trek 2, they don't know what to do, so they kill him off. 
So then they bring him back and he has to go through that process again. I guess it's fun to watch. Yeah, I, guess, I mean, I get it. It's always nice when like he's cold at the start and you see him, you know, be their friend by the end. But it gets, it gets a bit repetitive eventually. I do think um, he and William Shatner are really great when they're playing off each other in the scene where they're all in the truck together. I was about, that's, that scene is like my favorite in this film. It's so funny. Shatner really is good at comedy. And then I think for the first time you really see how great Leonard Nimoy is, is playing the straight guy. Well, there's a real skill in being the straight guy in a comedy. Yeah. yeah. Um, we're definitely seeing, uh, it, well, in the future scenes, I guess we see some Kirk. In the um, San Francisco scenes, we're seeing a whole lot more Shatner. Maybe it's the surroundings or maybe Kirk just loosens up in the past. I don't know. It was two different writers. So um, Harvey Bennett wrote the parts in the future and Nicholas Meyer wrote the part in the 80s. Oh, I didn't know that. Because they're very it's different. Definitely different feel, yeah. Yeah, and that's, um, yeah, I, I had seen that note. Um, and I think there's like, even like a, basically a deleted scene from uh, Time After Time that shows up. Is, is that the, is that the Paul Crocker? No, that's Leonard Nimoy's New York story being turned. But there's something in, that comes from a time after time that was basically taken from that script and uh, plunked into Star Trek four. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. You've read more on this sort of thing than I have. Yeah. I was hoping someone's going to fill in the gaps on that. Oh, well uh, I do like the punk rocker. Who knows? Maybe if I have some time, I'll, I'll just cover that song and stick it between segments. <laughs> the I hate you song. I like that song. <laughs> they wrote that just for the movie. Yeah. I think the, the actor that's the punk rock actually wrote the song and performed it as well. So, um, <laughs> you, he's just a typical guy who goes around trying to sell his mixtapes in American cities. Massive boom box. <laughs> but, uh, I think you could tell he's uh, personally involved with song cause just his, his, uh, middle finger comes at like just the right moment. <laughs> yeah. I gotta say, I have, you know, fantasies of doing something like that on public transportation. Just the Vulcan pinch. Vulcan neck pinch to the annoying person across the <laughs> hall. Everyone um, has that dream aisle. that you do that and get the big cheer. But <laughs> in, in Japan, they're pretty tame on the train most of them. Usually it's like some uh, salary man has just fallen asleep on you is the problem. One of my favorites, I was taking a train home one day and there was this very drunk salary man. He bought himself an ice cream and he just like stretched out over the whole chair. And I've never seen anyone enjoy anything as much as this guy was just loving this ice cream. <laughs> and he just looked like the coolest dude I've ever seen. Nice. Just lounging, just like savoring every bite of this ice cream. Better experience than the guy that just kept flipping forward and falling on top of me. <laughs> <laughs> Which just happened. Yeah, in America, I guess you'd start fights with that stuff. But uh, they, they fortunately don't do that too much in Japan. I've definitely been here long <laughs> enough now that when other foreigners get on the train and talk loudly... I just join in the Japanese disapproving glare. <laughs> no, you're quiet on trains. Shush. Um, any other, I, I guess I'll just need to shout Mark Leonard's name because he's here. I mean, he's just, he's basically just here. It's just always nice to see him. <laughs> yeah. Mark Leonard, Hasarek. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. Why did I not know his name? How can we forget Scotty in the computer scene? Oh yeah, Hello, computer. Yeah, I, I put in, I, I put in my notes which we're not looking at. I, I think Luke has seen me at work like doing this on multiple occasions. Yeah, you you age twenty years whenever you're close to a computer. <laughs> I do similar. I do similar. I think it's uh was especially interesting to me about that scene paired with one later in the film. Right, it's McCoy who's with him, who's like, aren't you worried about contaminating the timeline? But then in the hospital, he sees this woman with kidney failure 
And without a second thought, he's like, just take this pill. It'll be fine. And she grows a new kidney. What I love about that Scotty and um, McCoy team up is that they're like, they're a perfect mix of very smart and very stupid. (laughs) Depending on the context. Like Scotty knows engineering and McCoy knows medicine, but neither of them are like command material or decision making material. So Scotty's like, well, you know, maybe he invented it. And McCoy's like, yeah, sure. Why not? (laughs) (laughs) One thing I did notice um, that I guess, for the first time in this is I, I never caught on just when they're being given their assignments, how much McCoy is like, why are you giving me the crap job? <laughs> <laughs> because he wants to go be part of the, the, the trio, which is now a duo. This film for me is quintessential bones, right? Because he is prickly and he's grumpy and he is not here for what's going on. But at the end of the day, the thing he cares most about is saving people and their well-being. And that's what we see throughout this. That character characterization, wow, never wavers here. And it's it's on full display with with bones in the one with the whales. The hospital t- blah, 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 blah. The hospital scene in particular was like peak bones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's pretty much the first scene I, I think of, at least for movie bones. <laughs> oh yeah, other than that, it would just be like scenes where he's the guy who talks to Kirk. Well, I've already uh, we've already shown our appreciation of uh, disco bones with the giant beard and stuff. But I mean, yeah, if you're talking visually, then that's the best bones you can get: <laughs> <laughs> big beard and flared trousers. <laughs> I was gonna say, I think Sulu wins the costume contest for this movie, though, with his giant like poncho cape thing. Yeah, cowboy Sulu is great. Aqua blue. That that was I want that outfit. <laughs> I, I would 100 percent wear that. I think Lando would wear that one. Yeah, that's pretty Lando. It was very Lando. <laughs> I, I would also wear, and this is probably not a good thing to admit, I would totally wear, like, Shatner's maroon, like, <laughs> suede suit. Oh, yeah, yeah. To work? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like almost Austin Powers. <laughs> Are there his any- white undershirt, like his white dress shirt under that suit jacket, looks an awful lot like the white undershirt that Kai Wynn wears. Oh, yeah, yeah, from DS9, yeah. Oh, oh, the other thing I did, I remember putting in my notes is I put that he, he stole Wonder Woman's belt buckle. <laughs> we caught that. It's like this little wing thing. <laughs> I didn't catch that, but... Yeah, you'll have to get If it. I do get my, like, suede suit, I'm going to have to get that with it. <laughs> Once you see it, you will not unsee it. Sorry, time paradoxes. <laughs> that, that's, I think that's a good place to go. Um, what were we, so, selling the watch, was it? The glasses, yeah. The glasses, yeah. The watch would make sense. Yes, it is definitely the glasses. Just establishing right there for the rest of the movie that what they do in the past doesn't actually matter as long as they get those whales. I feel like that's because it's the 80s. Just <laughs> <laughs> nothing mattered anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Any other time we'd have to think about it a little harder. I think they're really telling us this is fun. This is not that serious. So like right off the bat, 
they're addressing what they know that fans are going to complain about the paradox and saying it doesn't matter let it go let's move on and have fun yeah it's definitely it's what the tone is like almost a comedy right so you can't be getting bogged down in that stuff yeah they purposely wanted to do a lighter funnier movie with this one that didn't have a villain there is no villain in star trek 4 really unless you count the probe but there's not like a con in this movie Oh, I was going to count the uh, director of the um, Cetacean Institute as, as the villain. <laughs> I mean, that's, he gets that slapped is, in the face. Yeah, he gets slapped. The villain gets slapped in the face. But yeah, he's the closest thing to a villain. He's more of just like a, you know, insufferable bureaucrat. So whatever. Yeah, even the probe is like this enigmatic force. And um, there's, I've, has anyone else read the sequel novel, Probe? Hmm. No, have you? It, yeah. Okay. It basically it's comes from a... It's been recommended to me. It's, it's actually... It, it's a good one, but I kind of feel like the film is better without any explanations. Yeah, having no subtitles for that conversation at the end is quite effective. Yeah. It's kind of like the 2001 thing. You read the book and they explain everything. And you're like, oh, you yeah, didn't so need to do that. Probe um, kind of tries to do that. It is good, but yeah, I think I prefer just, yeah, it's this enigmatic thing. It needs to speak to whales. You, you're not going to understand. <laughs> Which is pretty cool. It's causing a lot of destruction, but it's not doing so intentionally. Yeah, it's just trying to find the whales. Right. <laughs> like it probably just sees the people, or it, is, it does see humans as ants, where are the whales? Mm. Who might be smarter anyway, so. So long and thanks for all the fish. Yeah. Since, yeah, um, since I talked about, we talked about eating whales in Japan at the beginning. I should also mention I, I spent about half a year teaching at a whale camp, wherein we would, um, you know, teach about marine science and take kids on boats twice a week and go looking for whales. Um, so I, I have the other side of the coin too. I did a bit of my own uh, cetacean institute thing. Although I would often make the horrible joke that if we ever started running out of money, we could just like mount a harpoon on the front of this thing. <laughs> I don't know if I've told it on the podcast before, but since we're doing whales section, I've told you about my friend who had a whale land on her, right? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, my friend's sister. Well, yeah, I, I bumped into my friend's mum when I was working in a supermarket and I was like, oh yeah, how's the family? She's like, oh yeah, did you hear about Charlotte? No. Whale landed on her. I was like, what? So I just go on Google, I type Charlotte Kinlock whale. Sure enough, she's in a little dinghy and it just comes out of the water and boom, lands on her. She was pretty much fine, but like some bruising. But she was shoved underwater by a humpback whale. Wow. <laughs> I guess that maybe that more aggressive than George and Gracie, I guess. <laughs> I don't know if it was attacking or just like trying to play. <laughs> the dolphins want to play. When I was doing that whale watching, sometimes the dolphins would be little pricks and I'm hanging on the side of the boat and they just come up. <laughs> so they, they were definitely screwing with me. I, and then I had a whale um, breach and when they're doing their blow, that's like if I do a snot rocket Yeah. and I got covered in snot, then I was sick the next day. Nice. I think Ooh, I, you nearly like gave humanity the whale flu. Yeah, I think I get the whale flu. <laughs> <laughs> or you might have just been like sick by the thought of it. Yeah, really. <laughs> well, that, that does happen. So. <laughs> well, I mean, if we're we're talking about the oh, and I, the words left my brain. <laughs> but we're we're talking about the whales and the the whaling and the cetacean institute and and the time travel aspect of this. But the, the other really interesting thing about this film is that for the first time that I can think of, this is a Star Trek show where its, its message, its sociopolitical commentary is not metaphor. They are literally saving the whales. 
yeah, they are literally commenting on pollution. So any any interpretation is gone. It's just it's not allegory. It's not metaphor. It's not you know couched really in a sci-fi story. Their mission is to literally save the whales. Yeah, the only way it sort of uses a metaphor is the fact that there's a big probe coming to cause a problem rather than the environment being the problem on its own. But like, right, which can just be movie, seen as there's a problem because there are no whales. Yes, definitely. <laughs> the movies hadn't really been so like, hadn't really had a message up to this point. Obviously, the show is very political, but the movies had tended to just be sci-fi action romps before this one. I can't really think of what the what message it was trying to ram down our throats in one, two, or three. The first one got very philosophical. I, I would oh say. yeah, yeah, yeah very not not, sci-fi, yeah. Right, they, not really. They've certainly had themes, but I'm not so sure if there was a a message other than like a personal one. I mean, something that, that crops up all the time in Roddenberry's stuff that you see in the cage, you see in the motion picture, you see over and over again anytime Kirk gets promoted is the, the feeling, well, one of being obsolete, of like no longer being good at your job, or of getting too old to do your job, sort of like aging out of the captaincy. And it's it's an interesting theme that keeps coming up in, in Roddenberry's works and over and over again. In the movies, especially because that cast is getting older, they bring it up more and more. Also, I wonder if it's just the fact that he went from the fairly fun job of just writing episodes of Star Trek on TV to the presumably very tedious and red tapey job of producing huge Hollywood movies. He's only executive producing by this point. I think they. Uh, yeah, I don't I think know he how was much very active in the first season of Next Gen. But yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, from what I heard, he would just keep coming every time for the sequel, like with the script about them going back and either. Oh, the JFK or, one? Yeah, the JFK one. So yeah. I, and there was almost always a, a power struggle, really, after the second season of TOS, mm. where, you know, Gene was pushed out and he came back in and he got in a fight with this person and they got in a fight with that person. And I'm not sure how much he had to do hands-on with, with Star Trek four, but the, his ideas keep coming back into play. The philosophy definitely comes through here, even if, I mean, maybe it's more in Harbin and Nick Meyer's hands by this point, but you know, the, I, they didn't, they didn't like dilute the message at least, even if they mm-hmm. were kind of shoving the man out himself a bit. Well, the, the theme of obsolescence was from as early as the first film, right? And he was very involved in that one. From the it cage? Was, it, well, literally, yeah. <laughs> it was in the cage in the original pilot. True. There's a whole scene with uh, Pike and... Oh, with the original oh, Doctor, God, yeah. The original Doctor. Voice. Voice, thank you. Um, about how, you know, he's not sure he can do this anymore. And it even carries over. It's so ingrained in, in these original characters that it even carries over into the Kelvin universe. Cause in beyond we have Pine Kirk doing a voiceover about how like they've been out in space for two or three years and it's becoming so tedious. And is this really where he should be? And it's. Well, that one also had the really idea of, of um, Spock was thinking of leaving as well in that one. Mm-hmm. It's um. It reminds me, um, I've got a friend who's very into James Bond movies. And with each Bond, by the time you get to their last few films, they start doing the plot of, oh, are you too old to be Bond? Is Bond obsolete? Blah, blah, blah. And it's kind of strange that Daniel Craig, they start doing that from his second film. (laughs) It's kind of like, this is still meant to be young Kirk and Spock, but they're doing the, oh, we're getting too old and we should retire plot Mm -hmm. in their third movie. 
Well, there was a good what, seven or eight year difference between those tracks. So they, they were. The other, the other crazy thing, have you ever looked at the ages of the, the Kelvin actors and when the original series actors were first cast? Because they're actually not much younger. <laughs> People act like, oh, they've got this super young Kirk. But he's like two years younger than Shatner was. Okay. Yeah. Definitely looking a touch older in this one, though. <laughs> yes. But that's, that's what time does. Uh, it gets us all eventually. Well, you you mentioned like, there's not a huge amount in terms of effects, but I mean that time travel sequence when they first go back with their their giant morphing heads, that is something else. Yeah, that was bizarre. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it has some digital, I think, which was actually used to offset it. So they want you to think like this digital is wonky, but then it has the fantastic analog effect of. Once they finished the bird of the prey, uh, bird of prey set, they painted the whole thing white. Huh. <laughs> yeah, that's really impressive. <laughs> oh yeah, I think I just assumed it was like trick photography. <laughs> no, they painted everything white once they were finished. I oh, thought nice. that was pretty wild. Yeah. Um, <laughs> kind of reminded me of like some of the old Doctor Who openings, where like suddenly Tom Baker's face would come up on screen for a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, uh, the, the reeds and the wind shot always struck me as weird because it's just in the middle of this time trip and then it goes <laughs> back to space, which I, I wonder, um, sometimes, I bring up sometimes the, uh, the Soviet film Solaris, which I think had the astronaut staring at reeds in the wind for like five minutes listening to Bach. I, I always felt like maybe it was a, just a little nod to that. I don't know. I could be completely off. Well, this was the first one shown in the Soviet Union, so maybe that was how they were there trying to get them oh, on board. We'll do some more <laughs> on the effects, definitely, because you, you have a point. There's some stuff here. But, yeah, I, I, I play classical music, too, and I remember the first time playing Bach's Brandenburg Concertos. I'm like, wait a minute. The, the themes in this are just, like, really similar. Huh. So another little Bach connection there. <laughs> Oh, like when they're running around the hospital and stuff like that. Yeah, and it's all through the movie. Even really? the main theme is just it's uh, yeah, very Brandenburg concerto. If there's any any music dweebs out there, you know, I did miss um, the James Horner soundtrack, but also I think having a different composer set this movie apart. It did. I mean, like a almost like to a detrimental thing where it does it does feel more like an '80s comedy now, but. That's fine because it is an '80s comedy, and it's it's not as bad as the twin soundtrack, which I just like screamed about for five minutes. It would have felt weird if we'd had like the hijink scenes of them running around the '80s, and it had been playing like that epic Wrath of Khan like dramatic music. <laughs> I'm just glad they didn't go with that '80s trope of having like rock music in like your fantasy or sci-fi movie. Mm. Like I'm thinking like um oh god Lady Hawk. Oh, which right. was like a perfect period film except for the very modern soundtrack or like, oh God, what else? Highlander with Brian May, which actually is pretty yeah. awesome, but still it's not like a, it doesn't quite make sense. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or like the Kelvin verse with the Beastie Boys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We do get the I Hate You song here, but that's a, that's, that's a fun song. Yeah. And just one of the best jokes of the movie, so it gets a pass. <laughs> 
and different when it's written for the film. Yeah. Yeah, if it's not the hell your soundtrack, then it's not going to work. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that was one thing I, I wanted to get at. There's like kind of the controversy now because so much of the new Trek does have obscenities in it now, mm. which morally I, I don't care. But the one thing is it ruins the whole canon of colorful metaphors. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, there's like between like the future scenes in this and the Picard is like a hundred years. Yeah, but the dis- colorful metaphor, but then their yeah, discovery is a bit more. The obvious. discovery crew is also dropping the F-bombs. Again, I don't actually care. I just like the fact that they're just like, they don't understand at all how to use these words. It's uh, Every does- single time Spock swore, I was wetting myself laughing. <laughs> <laughs> but does it ruin it? Because Spock's only with Kirk, right? And, Maybe it's just Kirk who doesn't swear. It's just these two uptight dweebs don't swear. Because <laughs> well, like, honestly, though, always he, says Dan. He he says to him, "It's your pattern of speech that's changed." Mm. Yeah, he doesn't notice it in anybody else. The the thing so, that the reason it disappoints me is just because the phrase "colorful metaphors" is in my normal working vocabulary. We're <laughs> 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 talking to people. <laughs> I just think maybe maybe Kirk's enterprise is like the good place where he just really doesn't like swearing, so he doesn't let anybody do it. He's edited the Universal Translators to end censor people when they <laughs> swear. Yeah, now, now that Lower Decks is on, I just, when we, when we see the um, Saratoga at the beginning, I just like to think that it's a Serato sort of ship. Sorry, Luke, you haven't seen this yet. But no. <laughs> I, just, I just saw that out. Like, maybe they actually could have kept their power or something, but they're just, they're, they're, they're not the best crew. <laughs> okay. I was going to say, I saw um, a William Shatner panel few weeks back I think it was Galaxy Con thing and he was complaining about how he couldn't have a big finale to Star Trek 5 because they ran out of money because nobody told him how to budget when you were making a movie and so I just think it's hilarious that Leonard Nimoy directed this movie and it cost 21 million dollars and it was a million dollars under budget and it made a global total of 133 million dollars. Trek has a very good track record of letting their actors become directors. But um, yeah, Shatner, I guess, would be the exception to the rule. I've got to say, <laughs> I'm not surprised in the least to find out that Leonard Nimoy is better at math than William Shatner. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Uh, while we're just spit-taking, what, what is a better disguise? Uh, Clark Kent's glasses or uh, Spock's headband? I guess... Here's the real question. What's a better disguise, Spock's headband or Spock wearing a beanie and telling people he's Chinese? <laughs> well, the headband is not as racist. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so. I just remembered the other line from that one where he's like, oh, my friend is clearly Chinese and he caught his ears in a rice picking machine. Oh. Yeah, 60s, oh. the 60s were a different time. Yeah, but I really like that episode. <laughs> now I'm questioning it. Well, that, yeah, that's, that's the best one for most people, isn't it? Right. <laughs> that's what happens when you watch 54-year-old media. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, no, my, my thought is you won't notice the headband because you're distracted by the bathrobe, which is pretty Right. <laughs> and just the behavior and everything. <laughs> Too much LDS. <laughs> Oh, I'm a little disappointed because I read that um, in the original script, Savick had to stay on Vulcan because she was pregnant with Spock's child. Mm-hmm. And while that came out of nowhere, um, I'm actually kind of sad because think of how many storylines we could have had out of that. 
There's got to be a novel on that somewhere because that, it's not <laughs> clear that didn't happen. They just don't, you know, reference it directly. Right. There you go. But I feel like a big part of this film's, like, mission was by the end of this film, status quo is completely restored. So, like, we- a Spock child would have been a spanner in the works because they've gotten rid of David. They're back on the Enterprise. He's a captain again. They really wanted to be like, oh, next film is going to be just like how you remember it. They opened the film talking about all of the charges that are being leveled against Kirk and his crew and then just dismiss them because he saved Earth. Yes, saving Earth, good. We want to do that. But the charges he was facing before that were completely unrelated to this whale mission. (laughs) Don't worry about it. It's cool. You can be a captain, which is what you want anyway. So it's more of a reward than a punishment. And here's a brand new shiny ship. I can kind of understand that from like the Federation and the Starfleet side, but what happened to the like the Klingons who were like demanding his blood? They're still right. pretty pissed in the next two films. Okay. I don't remember them showing up much in five. <laughs> yeah, there's that, oh, it's you the forgot story. about it because it doesn't matter. But there's people like, oh, if I can take out Kirk, I'll be like, you know, right. And then out. yeah, of course, by six. In six, yeah, the Klingons are the point of the film. They throw him in the prison finally. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, just for this film itself. They kind of expect you to forget that at the end. Yeah. Happy ending. Don't worry about that Klingon stuff. That is the most Star Trek that Star Trek ever Star Trekked, right? (laughs) Is it forget about the bad stuff somebody did because they did something good later? Mm hmm. Or or on DS9 where they do something horrible and we just forget about it the next week. (laughs) There's, uh, there's, There's one that I recently watched with like Worf just sabotaging Ryza. And by the next mm-hmm. week, eh, he's back in charge of the Defiant. <laughs> How many times does Data take over the Enterprise D? A lot. <laughs> by the blood moon. The official title is the one with the whales, right? That's what it says on the poster? According to the Japanese Amazon Prime, I just watched it on, it's The Long Road Home. Isn't that Nelson Mandela's biography? And that was The Long Road to Freedom. Oh, okay. That makes more sense anyway. (laughs) (laughs) He wasn't far from his home. He was just in a prison cell. Right, 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 right. Okay. I I did read it. It was just 20 plus years ago. I also might just be Google Translate. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think Google Translate too. You get some weird transliterated titles, but it, it is, it's an outlier of the Star Trek films. It doesn't, I mean, if you wanted to be like, like this is Star Trek, does it work? It's got more of the, like we were saying, this one's got a lot of a message, which is very Star Trek and a very hopeful tone, which is very Star Trek. And to be honest, if you're talking about Star Trek to this point, Every other episode was a time travel episode or an episode where the planet's based on Earth or something. So it is actually very Star Trek. Mm-hmm. I guess it's a little contentious, to though, that just to say the Enterprise is a character. So Star Trek Three, we didn't get Spock. This one, we don't get the Enterprise, really. That is, yeah. Especially, I remember I watched it, like I said, I watched it as a kid and then came back to it. I don't think I remembered that this whole film was in a Klingon ship. So I think I'd kind of superimposed the Enterprise into all of the Bird of Prey scenes. 
when I'd thought about this film in the intervening years. But as part, of, it's, it's sort of a trilogy, right? Of two, three, four. Yeah, oh yeah, Washington. So it, it, it works, it works great narratively. I'm just like, like looking at it as like here is like a prime example of Star Trek. Does it quite work? I think That's it might thing. be an outlier among the films that we have so far. But if you look back at the episodes of original Star Trek, I think it fits in really well. It's got that level of camp and fun that you see in episodes like The Trouble with Tribbles or Shore Leave. And I mean, that's one of the reasons I love it so much. Well, and part of the beauty of Star Trek is there is no, this is what Star Trek is, example. It, Star Trek is a lot of things. So like to give an example of Star Trek, you'd kind of need to give like motion picture, Wrath of Khan and Voyage Home. And say so it's all of these things and more. Yeah, this does take one of the bigger boxes with those aforementioned episodes. Yeah, it's the fun, campy Star Trek is part of Star Trek. So is serious action Star Trek. So is philosophical mm-hmm. sci-fi Star Trek. So is super political Cold War allegory Star Trek, as we've got coming up. So <laughs> it's all Star Trek. Because it's a rich universe that can tell us a lot of different kinds of stories. Exactly. Yes. And I guess this is a good way to exploit that, just to, in a very interesting, like, let's go you know, 80s comedy way, which they could only do in the 80s, so it works that way. We have, we have comedy Star Trek on TV now. Hmm. Could, you really, could you make an actual, like, comedy Star Trek movie now? Well, they pretty much did. Like, the three, the three cover movies are full of jokes. It's the thing I keep bringing up. You can't do parodies anymore because the jokes are just in everything. Yeah, I just feel like this, this Star Trek Four actually does legitimately rate as a comedy, where the Kelvin versus sci-fi, just with, with like you said, that's I would, ironic. And I humorous. would honestly say, if you, go back, if you go and watch, like, 2009, there's as many jokes as there are in this. There's the bit where Kirk gets, like, teleported into the water pipes and Scotty's running around after him. There's, like, Scotty's got, like, a little comedy alien sidekick. It's full of that sort of thing. Well, they cast Simon Pegg, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, you don't, you don't cast Simon Pegg because you want to make the most serious film ever, right? <laughs> It's, it's the tone that's really different, right? The, the newer films have these comedic moments, but the tone of the film overall is, is a lot more serious and a lot more action. I would mm. certainly not call The Voyage Home an action film by any means, you know? Um, and especially those like city street scenes reminds me a lot of Ghostbusters when they're like running around Manhattan early on in the film. Um, and it, it just has that, that, right level of camp could they do something like it today i don't think they could do it without it being another low stakes story right because there is no villain because there's nobody they have to fight because there's no space battle i mean yes the the earth oceans are vaporizing but that's happening years in the future (laughs) so they're they're able to to have it be more like a romp because there's no immediate danger for the crew and they they need to to find a creative way to to replicate that kind of situation for for something made today and uh without copying it because we all know how well that went with into darkness Mm. although to give an example outside of star trek um in the marvel films they had thor ragnarok which was very much a comedy but also like the highest stakes of all the Thor films. Like um, Asgard is like utterly destroyed in that film. But then they, the comedy kind of undercuts that. 
So do you, can they just do a high stakes film and make it a comedy anyway? Or do they have to make it low stakes for it to be a comedy? I guess there's a certain feeling you get from, I mean, this is an inspiring one. Thor is still, I, I do like Ragnarok a lot, but it is kind of overwhelming in the end. This, this movie is kind of like, you know, you're cooking and you put it on simmer. Mm. Sometimes you don't want to just like blast it on full heat, which is what something like Ragnarok is doing. But I think that's, I think that's just the way comedy films have changed since this period. Com comedy films now have gone back to the airplane mode of just joke, 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 never let up. Whereas the action films are at the same level of jokes as what a comedy film was in the 80s. I'm thinking of the, the short trek with the triples and mm. how it's not really campy. It's more like tongue in cheek. Right. Mm. Yeah, I, I love that one. And I, commercial I really enjoyed that. But a lot of people complain that in order to make it a comedy, they kind of break a lot of what Star Trek is. In that yeah, she is a terrible commander. <laughs> she's, <laughs> not, she's not Star Trek at all. Those are what eight to ten minutes are very divisive. Yeah, <laughs> well, I like it. It's, it's experimental. Some of the experiments it, it, work. It's a comedy sketch. It's not supposed to be. This is the bold new direction for all of Trek. I don't. So know. I couldn't get upset about it. Right. We're but th that's a great point though that we're seeing even with lower decks we're seeing some of those the same kind of complaints that like comedy a comedy setup isn't Star Trek, quote unquote, because, you know, the characters are mean to each other or nobody would ever talk to their commanding officer that way. And I think you have to, it's a tonal shift, right? When you go into a, a story that you know is going to be more comedic. Like I have been rewatching Deep Space Nine currently. And every Thursday when we get a new Lower Decks, it is a massive tonal shift from Deep Space Nine to Lower Decks, but you just have to, to get in the right headspace for it, I think. And forgive it its use of like sitcom tropes almost, because remember, it's a comedy show. I also think a lot of people forget, even in like TOS and TNG, Kirk and Picard are not the norm. Like they are exceptional captains, and we always we often meet other captains who are not as like perfectly moral and stand up as they are, especially admirals. Yeah, <laughs> so <laughs> it's not like Star Trek says literally everyone in Starfleet is like a moral super being. It's like these are the ideals that they strive towards, and the characters we're going to look at happen to be like great examples of that. But they're still human beings, they're good people, bad people, petty people, noble people. And they just all happen to be working together for a common goal. One other big difference, I think, in the comedy in this is um, there's no, it's not referential. Like now there's got to be all the references to other stuff, but none of the mm -hmm. comedy in here in particular, like you don't need to know anything about previous Star Trek. Uh, maybe the Scotty talking to the computer joke, but that's like as bad as it gets. Yeah, but you know, he's from the future. He's trying right, yeah, to interface. You, you... Like that makes sense. I mean, Give, it, give one of our students, you know, our students are 18 and under, give them a, a Apple IIe and see what they do. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. People are always sharing YouTube <laughs> videos of kids Mac trying TV, to touch, but... touch screens, right? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I guess it's, uh, it's very much, it's just a fish out of water comedy, right? So the jokes will just come from those weird interactions. So I, my, I guess my take would be this film holds up very well, yet, it's like a fascinating product of its time as well. That's something that isn't, would not happen now. Perhaps this one holds up so well because it just revels in its 80s-ness. 
So like maybe when you're watching something like Search for Spark, there are moments where it doesn't hold up so well because other films are still doing that and better. But no film that wasn't made in the 80s is trying to be the 80s. <laughs> well, a few are. But... Like you mentioned the Ghostbusters vibe on the street. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, I guess we're going to wrap up here, but do you have any final thoughts you want to throw on this one? Yeah, I was just thinking, we were talking about the, the film holding up. I think a lot of those those movies we love from the 80s when we say they don't hold up, people bring up most often cell phones, right? They could have solved this problem if they just had a cell phone when they could talk to each other. The thing is, because it's Star Trek, they kind of do. They oh, yeah, have Star their Trek communicators. Yeah, so that, that problem isn't there. So I think a lot of, because our characters from the future have Star Trek technology in the 80s, a lot of those common... Uh, dings you would have at like does this 80s movie hold up aren't there anymore and I think you know I, I think this one does a, a pretty good job I think there is there might be some updated language if it were being written today but but that's about it I mean I also admit that I this is my favorite Star Trek movie so I have a hard time looking at it objectively but um yeah, that's that's it for me. Now you've got me imagining all the colourful metaphors jokes, but with, like, Deadpool's vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly what I meant, but yeah. sure. <laughs> Just spark dropping F-bombs and C-bombs every other sentence. <laughs> they are not the fuck your whales. <laughs> they do that in Discovery, don't yeah, they? True. <laughs> Yeah, but can you imagine from Leonard Nimoy's mouth? Yeah. I love Spock just adding the hell randomly in the middle of sentences. My favorite one is when they're on the ship, it's, the mission is pretty much over, and he still says to Kirk, just a damn minute. <laughs> he learns well. Yeah, sort of. I was just thinking that I think part of the reason that the Trekkies love this one so much is because it's set in a setting that we're familiar with and that's real and that a lot of us have been to. And so it makes it, okay, let's be honest. We've all imagined ourselves in Star Trek stories before. So this movie makes it a little bit easier to imagine yourself in a Star Trek story because they're a part of our world in this one. Yeah. It's it's like the convention on film almost. (laughs) There's the like archetype stereotype of a Star Trek fan, right? Is the socially awkward, bit of a weirdo so it's nice to see that Kirk and Spock are that as well when they come to our world <laughs> oh I just have one final thought if, if you tell me to trust you and give me a pizza with mushrooms we've we've broken trust yeah I, <laughs> mushrooms are just like slugs I do not enjoy mushrooms <laughs> maybe that's why I'm short though if I ate mushrooms like Mario yeah. <laughs> Do we think Michelob uh, paid for that product placement, though? Yeah, probably as well. Say, there's got to be a better beer selection as well. <laughs> I didn't even know what Michelob was. I thought it was a cheese. <laughs> <laughs> That's because you have better beers. And <laughs> well, yeah, I come from Europe. We have real Because you were born in 1990. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it hurts. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll roll into port get in that new enterprise uh of course women at warp has quite a few fascinating episodes the the perfect uh trip for a late night long walk and and probably <laughs> listening in your house and other places too can you tell us a bit about your uh podcast and how to, to get into that 
Sarah? I am the new person here. Why don't you go ahead? <laughs> All right. Um, so we are, Women at Warp is a feminist Star Trek podcast on the Roddenberry Podcast Network. Uh, our mission is to explore intersectional diversity in infinite combinations. And uh, you can find the show at womenatwarp.com or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Women at Warp. Thanks. Okay. So Sarah, don't feel too bad. I've been doing this podcast the entire time we've been doing it. And I still can't quite spit out the letters for a Twitter, which would be <laughs> M-L-S-F-S-Pod. Yeah. <laughs> can you make it a full sentence? <laughs> <laughs> well, Luke here can just spit out the letters. Yeah, if you like our podcast, you can find us on Twitter at MLSFSPod. We're also on Facebook. Just search Matt and Luke Sci-Fi Sanctuary. Um, give us an iTunes review, I guess. Apparently that helps. You should definitely do one because we're recording this literally on my 30th birthday. <laughs> 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 birthday um, and if you've enjoyed the music you've heard during this podcast, you can find more of Matt's music at rovingsagemedia.bandcamp.com. And then uh, Luke, also, he does sci-fi. He does Pokemon, which is kind of sci-fi with Luke Loves Pokemon and Luke Loves PKMN. Yes. That worked. Yeah, but you still have to say, like, on Twitter. On Twitter. I mean, I guess if you say at, people know what you mean. It's 2020. And Luke saw me close my eyes as I did the letters, too. Yeah. My eyes it's, oh, it's like seeing him get visions. <laughs> <laughs> I can't spell. That's a, I need visions. I can't spell. I, was, I, I said it. I, I was... At the first grade spelling bee, they'd be like rat. I'm like SAT. You're out. <laughs> we changed our our podcast intro after five years about a month ago, and every time I do it, I automatically go into the old one and stop myself about halfway through. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, you're lucky. Luke, we've, Luke had to change our outro when we started getting more guests because. It was rude. We used to we used to use a lot of colourful metaphors in the outro of our podcast, <laughs> and then we started getting people on, and I felt really embarrassed about doing it. <laughs> What's today's outro then? Where do, where do the where are our fine guests and the good listeners do at this point? Uh, well, yep, Sarah Sue, thanks for joining us. But you and the listeners at home can jump in the water and swim with the whales. That's what I thought you'd say. Yeah, there's just nothing else to say on this one, is there? No. Okay. I think I've used Beam Up before, so I couldn't use that right here. <laughs>